0: The passage for tonight comes from Esther chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 4, verses uh, 17. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hammedatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day, they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it, to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is, the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Herman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamidatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's traps the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, "'put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, "'wailing loudly and bitterly. "'But he went only as far as the king's gate, "'because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. "'In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, "'there was great mourning among the Jews, "'with fasting, weeping, and wailing. "'Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. "'When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants "'came and told her about Mordecai,' "'She was in great distress. "'She sent clothes for him to put on "'instead of his sackcloth, "'but he would not accept them. "'Then Esther summoned Hathak, "'one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, "'and ordered him to find out "'what was troubling Mordecai and why. "'So Hathak went out to Mordecai "'in the open square of the city "'in front of the king's gate. "'Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him.' including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the Edict for their Annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer, I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Thank you, Brad. And you might find
1: it helpful to uh, keep in front of you. My name's Nick. If we haven't met, if you're a guest of ours here at St Matthews, it's great. You're here. We normally hang out after the service. It'd be great uh, to meet you then. Uh, this is a sermon, though, about making difficult decisions. Uh, a friend of mine was telling me the other day about a travesty in Australian culture when we didn't eat enough eggs. Big problem, and so the Australian uh, egg industry got wind of this. They did some research and they came up with this genius idea that when uh, you went to a deli to order a milkshake, you would automatically, automatically be asked, "Well, would you like one egg?" Or two—it's a genius idea—and it's a classic industry move. Uh, big tobacco, big, uh, big tech, big egg—they're all the same. This is what they do. And we can try the question here, right? Uh, when you come for a milkshake, what would you like? Two eggs? Put your hands up if you want two. No, one egg. Who wants one? It's the better option, surely. A couple? Yeah, yeah. Wrong answer. It's obviously zero uh, eggs and milkshakes. This is just the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Uh, but big egg—that's what they did. Uh, But the point of that story is that when it comes to making decisions, binary choices are actually really easy. You know, Maybe you have to do some thinking and you might come up with a list of of pros and cons, but really at the end of the day you just have to pick one or the other. But what do you do when the decision isn't that simple? Uh, What do you do when uh, there are more than two options? When there's 10, when there's 20, when... When it's grey, when there's no black and white, what do you do then? If you're a regular here at St Matthew's, you might have got an email this week about a decision that happened at the General Synod of the Anglican Church. It's kind of a big week where uh, all the kind of Anglican uh, people get together, and it's kind of like our version of the Parliament where they kind of make decisions about the church. And it was there that some people formally jettisoned the Word of God that uh, they took uh, what the Bible says about human sexuality and, and marriage and they said, we do not agree. They have given up on the power of repentance. They've given up on the power of the gospel to change people. Uh, and if churches like ours are, are to stand up against something like that and to herald what we think is actually the truth, that, that's going to come at a cost to us. Uh, it's entirely possible that for us to stand up against that, we could lose stuff, Uh, that that we could lose our money, our time, Uh, possible that we could lose this building because we believe in something different. How do you make a decision like that? Uh, Maybe a a different scenario, You're, you're at work and your colleague says, well, I just can't stand at anything that Christians believe. Maybe they're your boss. In that moment, what do you do? How, how do you make a decision about how to respond to something like that? Maybe you're in class and you hear uh, some people mocking a friend of yours wearing a CU t-shirt. How do you respond? How do you make that decision? Uh, this is a sermon about deciding those things. Uh, to get there, we're going to take three steps. We're going to look at the story. Uh, we're going to think big picture about it, and then we're going to come down to earth and do some application together. As Brad said uh, last week, uh, we learned that Queen Vashti, uh, the original king of per- uh, queen of Persia, had been uh, disposed of, and Queen Esther arose, and that's where we left off. And in Chapter 3, uh, we meet a guy called Haman who gets a huge uh, promotion. Have a look down in chapter 3, uh, he gets this promotion. It's, it's a big one. He's basically the prime minister of Persia now. And so in verse 2, it's sycophant city. Uh, everyone's kneeling down to pay him honour. There, there's handshakes. There's bottles of wine exchanged. Everyone wants to say, well done, slap him on the back. Everyone except Mordecai. When I was in primary school, it was a guy called Matthew. Uh, he had more marbles than anyone else. And in year 3, he threw a sand bundi. In my eye, I couldn't stand him and then for a week I couldn't see him. Uh, But for Mordecai, notice it's not jealousy, but history that gets him in a rage. Because verse 1, Haman was an agagite. Now, uh, that sounds like some kind of mediocre rock, uh, but that's not what it is. Uh, An agagite was an enemy of the people of God. Uh, Multiple times in Israel's history, they had tried to take them down. And in one particular occasion, uh, the Agagites uh, tried to take down King Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, which last week we learned was the tribe of Mordecai. And so Haman is this ancient enemy, and Mordecai remembers. So verse 3, the bullies gather around and they're pressuring him. They want Mordecai to conform And then in verse 4, they turn into dobbers and they tell Haman not just what Mordecai had done, but also who he was, that he's a Jew. And so then in verse 5, Haman sees what's happening with his own eyes. He learns that Mordecai's a Jew and he looks for a way to kill them all. It's just just ridiculous that that one guy gets offside and now he wants to kill all of them. And it's because, isn't it, that, that, that for Haman, it's not about the promotion, it's not about Mordecai, it's about the people of God, his ancient enemy as well. He wants to destroy them. In the Garden of Eden, there was a serpent. And this is his work right here. Uh, God promised that between the serpent and the offspring of Eve, there would always be enmity that Satan would always try to attack God's people. And so when you see news of Christians being persecuted uh, in Africa or or the Middle East or China, that is Satan at work. When, When people mock Jesus in public, when they want Christians out of schools, when you see Haman taking on Mordecai, it's Satan at work. So what does Haman do next? Uh, we'll have a look at verse 8. He, he runs to the king and he says to him, well, uh, there's this guy Mordecai and there's these Jews and they're not in your best interest to tolerate. Which is really ironic because you remember last week, uh, he doesn't realise this, the king, but he's just married a Jew. And it was a Jew who saved his life. It, it's stupid. But just like Satan, Haman deceives. And all of God's enemies always will. And so in verse 12, they write a decree and they put all of this into law. Uh, If you're writing an essay this week, a good word to try and put in would be the word tautology. It's where you say the same thing twice in different words and therefore you can use different words to say the same thing twice. Which is really helpful because then you can say the same thing twice but use different words. And then using different words, you can say, do you see what I'm saying? It's tautologist, isn't it? And it's so irritating. I hated myself saying it. But uh, in verse 12, that's what Haman does in his decree. Uh, Have a look again. On the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in a script of each province and the language of each people all. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces and ordered to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, men and women, men and children, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, to plunder their goods, a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they'd be ready for that day. It's just repetitive again and again and again. And it's because the fate of God's people is sealed. It doesn't matter where, it doesn't matter who, all people in every place know that on the 13th day of the 12th month, they ought to go out and kill the Jews. And that's chapter 3. It ends with Haman and Xerxes out on the porch having a drink while the city is in an uproar. So how do Esther and Mordecai react in chapter 4? Well, in chapter 4, uh, Mordecai puts on sackcloth and ashes, think hessian sack and, and, and fire soot, and he weeps and wails for the world to hear. And, you know, who could fault the band? He was faithful to his people and now his faithfulness seems to be having them killed. And yet it's interesting, don't you think, that he never goes back on his actions, that that he laments not his faithfulness but his foe, that he never says sorry, instead he screams about the one who should be. It's a very interesting thing that he does. I think if you set uh, the the chapters of of chapter 3 and 4 to music, you know, kind of went all Hans Zimmer or or John Williams on the thing, Uh, chapter 3 would definitely be uh, Darth Vader's Imperial March, Uh, maybe with like an eerie crow at the end as Haman and and Xerxes have a drink together. But as you step through into chapter 4, the Imperial March ends and we just get chaos. I don't know if you've seen the new Princess Diana film, uh, but uh, it's kind of set in her later years as a princess when her marriage is kind of over, but she hasn't quite escaped it. And in order to create this kind of sense of, of powerlessness and, and her unpredictable mental state, uh, the directors did a really smart thing. They just used jazz, this kind of erratic sound. There's like a cymbal there and a snare drum and this bass drum that's going up and down uh, like a crypto market. And uh, it's just really erratic. It's really hard to listen to. But it creates this sense of Chaos. And as the camera pans from Mordecai to Esther, I think that's what we get. As readers, we've got the privilege of this kind of bird's-eye view of everything that's happening. We see Haman and the king, we see Mordecai, we see Esther, we see her servants. But for her, we can't miss the fact that she never meets anyone in this chapter other than Hathak. She doesn't doesn't meet Mordecai, she doesn't talk to the king. And in verse 4, she doesn't even realise what has happened She hears of Mordecai's distress and she has to send to find out what has happened. So verse 5, she sends Hathak to go find out. Verse uh, 6, Hathak uh, finds Mordecai and comes back to her. Verse 7, Mordecai tells Hathak everything. And in verse 8, he returns to Esther with an exact copy of the decree written down. It's this kind of text message chain going back and forth because they never see each other. And in all that chaos... Suddenly right there when the edict arrives the music stops and everything stops spinning and you can just imagine her opening the scroll slowly reading the words on the page realising what Haman has done and as she reads the words that spell the death of all of her people she puts down the scroll and Hathak leans over and tells her what Mordecai has instructed that she must go to the king and she must beg for mercy. It's like one of those we need you posters from World War II. And yet, instead of an army, it's a young woman. And instead of an adventure of a lifetime, it's suicide. In verse 11, she sends a note back to Mordecai, reminding him of the risk of seeing the king unsummoned. Uh, Her title reads queen, but in reality, she's a concubine. She's a sex slave. And she doesn't actually have the right to just see him when she wants. And really, it's code word for I'm scared. I'm all alone. I'm safe where I am. The, the king doesn't even know I'm a Jew yet. Can I, can I just stay where I am? And we know that feeling, right? You're, you're, you're at a party or you're at a meeting and, and you meet someone and they don't yet know you're a Christian and you know it's about to come up. But you just think, I'm safe where I am. Does it have to be this way? verse 12 to 14, we get Mordecai's immortal words. They're worth rereading again. Verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. The key idea here is certainty. Uh, Think back over with me uh, what he says. Verse 13, do not think that you alone of all the Jews will escape. Is Mordecai certain there? I I would think we'd have to say yes, that Uh, Just because Esther is queen doesn't mean that she will escape the death of the Jews. He's pretty certain about that. Uh, Then there's verse 14. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Uh, Is Mordecai certain? I think, again, check. He's certain about that. Somehow, in some sense, he knows. He knows that deliverance will come. He knows that God will act to rescue his people that he will not fail in his promise for Israel to be a nation with a land, with people as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. It's like Martin Luther King when he says that the arc of the universe bends towards justice. He knows, he knows the ending. He's certain about it. What about the end of the letter? He says, Esther, who knows whether you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? Is he certain about that? Because I think, on balance, we would have to say no. He's been so decisive. Do not think. Deliverance will come. And then, right when it counts, right when Esther is being put in the firing line, he's uncertain. He's saying, Esther, I can't see the future. I just can't. But maybe it's possible. Maybe. You are the queen because your people need a hero. And is it possible that that is part of the plan? So, verse 16, Esther takes his advice and she says, I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. It's fascinating that up until this point in the book, uh, Esther has only been referred to as Queen Esther once. We're 40% of the way through, and she's only been referred to Queen Esther once. Uh, But from here on out, she gets that title 13 times. And it's kind of hard to know, but I wonder if this is just a little signal from the writer that this is her moment. It's like Ashbardi at Wimbledon standing up and saying to the world I'm ready to rule I'm ready to call the shots and so the chapter ends with Mordecai doing all that she tells him to do and if you want to know what happens next you'll have to come back next week Uh, but let's think this through together let's think about it a bit more Uh, as we think about the meaning of the story there's there's a few things that we can't avoid doing And I think the first thing we can't avoid is that if it's a story about God's deliverance of his people, then we can't not ponder our deliverance as well. You know, we we, we see this Satan-like enemy, hell-bent on taking out the people of God, and we can't help but just think that Jesus is the one who comes to deal with him in one fell swoop. We have this moment where Esther is having to make a choice. Will she identify with the people of God or will she stay in the safety of the palace? And, you know, you just can't help but think of the one who did not stay in heaven but descended in the flesh to deal with our sin. We watch as as Esther weighs up the risk to her life for the sake of others. And you can't help but see the sacrifice of Jesus. The one who did not say, if I perish, but I will. From Exodus to Esther, from Esther to Easter, God has always had a plan to deliver. And as followers of the Lord Jesus, we can't not stop and just go, wow. To look at the grace of God and the sacrifice of his son and ponder its brilliance. But there's a little bit more going on. The last couple of weeks, Adrian and I have been in the process of moving out of our house and one of the things you have to do when you're moving out of a rental is kind of subject yourself to this final inspection where they come and Uh, look in every nook and cranny and it sounds kind of scary but really it's just a giant game of uh, spot the difference between when you moved in and when you moved out and so for the last few weeks we've been walking around with pictures in our crayons trying to circle all the differences and Adrian keeps saying that different birds and clouds don't count but I think they do Uh, and this really has nothing to do with the talk except to say what is the substantial difference between Jesus' deliverance and Esther's? Ignore gender, ignore time, ignore location. What is the substantial difference? The difference is Jesus knew God's plan and Esther didn't. Think back to the Gospels where Jesus says, I lay down my life on my own accord. Think about how, how he knows who will betray him. He knows when his arrest is coming. He says that he uh, shares the mind of the Father. He's seen the plans. In theological terms, he knows the omnipotent sovereignty of God and he can see it. But that's not where we are in Esther. Because by comparison, in Esther, God is hidden. He doesn't ever share... His plans with her. He doesn't speak with her. He doesn't reveal to her what's about to happen. There's no prophet that comes and shares a word. There's no uh, angel. There's no word from the sky. There's nothing. All she knows is that deliverance might come or will come, but she has no idea how. And therefore as well as being a picture of Jesus and our final deliverance, Esther is also a picture of us. It's a picture not just of deliverance, but experience of the real world where we can't see God, where the destination to heaven is clear, but the path is murky. it's this picture of, of where you don't know what's going to happen, where you, where you don't know what God is up to. A picture of where, as someone belonging to Christ, your back is up against the wall, and you've got to make a decision about what you are going to do in a tough spot. And you don't hear anything. And so as we finish, uh, we want to think about what Esther has to teach us about that. The experience of life in the world. So we'll do some application. I think the main uh, premise that we are kind of establishing here is that in Esther's world uh, and our world, God is at the same time both sovereign and yet silent. As Tim Keller puts it, uh, Uncle Tim as I call him, uh, God is silent but he isn't absent. And we see that in Esther's story, right, that uh, she doesn't know if God will use her royal position. She doesn't know why the old Queen Vashti was deposed. She doesn't know why uh, she was born beautiful and won the affection of this king. She doesn't, she doesn't know why the Jews have been in danger and at the same time she has risen to power. She doesn't know if God is going to use her. She doesn't know any of these things. But as Mordecai reminds her, God isn't absent. She knows he has a plan, that he's working it out. She knows deliverance is coming. And the key lesson to learn from her is that she does something. That despite not knowing, she takes action. It's incredible. Uh, There's a really tacky saying that you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Uh, even an Kick team would cringe if you tried to use that to motivate them. Uh, but it is 100% what Esther is doing. She has no idea what the plan is. But she knows that God will do his job and therefore she steps up and she does hers. God isn't absent and so she gets into action. Uh, so think with, with me for a moment. What's, what's that going to look like at Uni Church if, if, we, if we know that God's going to deliver us but we can't see what he's doing, what will it look like for us to be people of action in the world? Here's a few things for you to think of. Uh, Firstly, I think we're going to have to expect difficulty. You know, if Esther's world was a world of, of exile and enemies, then that is now us. Satan and the forces of darkness are going to be actively trying to make life difficult. And as a climate for making choices and living faithfully, that is going to be hard. It's going to feel hostile. Expect difficulty. Secondly, I think we're going to have to expect ambiguity. You know, as, as Christians one of the things we're really good at is knowing what we believe, but we're not always good at knowing what to do. But when things are tough, when work or uni as Christians feels dangerous, when, when our morality and our beliefs are not matching up with the world, it's not going to be clear which path we need to take going to feel ambiguous expect difficulty expect ambiguity thirdly expect responsibility the, les- the lesson from Esther is that despite not knowing she still has to do something and the lesson is that God's sovereignty is worked out in the course of humanity through humanity <laughs> and therefore in faith we're going to have to do something Who knows whether standing up and talking about Jesus when our boss disproves isn't the thing that's going to lead to someone's salvation. Who knows? Who knows if if turning the cheek again and again and again when derided or scorned is not the thing that lets people know that we trust in another world, that we trust in another king. Who knows? The paradox is because we don't know, we're going to do something. We're going to take responsibility because we're going to trust that God is at work through it. Expect difficulty, expect ambiguity, expect responsibility. Here's the weird one. Expect latency. I tried to find a better word, but I could not in the history of English at all. Uh, uh, Latency, it's the idea that something is true and actually in existence, and yet you can't see it yet something that's true and actually in existence but you can't see it yet and of all the things that's going to define us in God's sovereignty and people who act through it that is the thing because when called to do something hard for the longest time we're probably not going to see if it's worth it like like Esther saying if I perish I perish We're not going to be able to find out straight away if the outcome was worth sacrificing for. We will have to live without knowing whether God is at work in that action. And it's going to be costly. It's going to hurt. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to feel ambiguous. And yet, deliverance will come, and what is latent will become abundantly clear. And we will know eventually, in time, that the Lord is good. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be ambiguous. It's going to take responsibility. But the latent sovereignty of God will come true and come good for us. So let's take it back to the start. How do you make difficult decisions? How do we decide what to do when things are getting hard uh, in a sense I'm not really sure what the exact answers are that's for us to figure out together as a church when, when we see another Christian copying it what should we do when, when a colleague confronts you about what you believe what are we going to do those are the pertinent questions I've got no idea what the Anglican church needs to do to stand up against people that want to take it down Who knows if speaking up will give us a chance to herald the hope that we have? Who knows if our strength of conviction will witness to our trust in one who reigns over all? Who knows if our stand for the gospel will save the church, this church? Who knows? The answer in Esther is that God knows. God knows it all and he is directing it all and he is doing it all for our good. And therefore we can do something. We can take a stand that hurts. We can bear the cost of faithfulness. We can risk it all and not know what's going on because we know that deliverance will come. We know that the Lord Jesus will return. And we know that the sovereign God will see our actions. He'll see our service. And He will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. We don't know. But He does. And therefore, as Christians, we ought to be people of action. Why don't we pray? Father God, you have seen all history and yet to us it feels like we live in a time of upheaval. We struggle to know how to be faithful to you and how to bear the cost of witnessing to the Lord Jesus. We pray this week as we go to work and uni and live life in this world that you will give us a great trust in your strength to do good through us and in us for your glory. We pray that you would give us bravery and courage to act Uh, not because we ourselves are strong, but because you are and your sovereignty is abundantly good.